Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about games, but we're talking about games as products. Uh, what it looks like to actually have a game that is marketable, that is sellable. And we're talking to Randy Hoyt from Foxtrot Games. He's a BGDL uh, listener. He's part of the community. Randy, really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, and it's great to be here talking with you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about this today because this is something a lot of people don't think about, especially early on. You know, you've got your game, your baby you're working on, but you don't necessarily think of it as a product. You don't necessarily think of it as something that would be on a store shelf, like sellable, marketable. You think of it, oh, it's a game. It's fun to play. And But there's a lot more to it than just being fun to play, especially when you look into the publishing aspect. Now, Randy, you're a publisher. You're a designer. Uh, just in case people haven't heard of you, haven't heard of Foxtrot, tell me about you and how you got into games. Yeah, so my name is Randy Hoyt. I'm the owner and founder of Foxtrot Games. My brother and I, a few years ago, started the company. We had a game design idea. We'd seen a Kickstarter starting to grow with games. It was still small, but this wasn't the very beginning, but you know, pretty early on in the process of Kickstarter growing. So we d- did a game. I did the game design mechanics. My brother did the artwork, and we put it up on Kickstarter. You know, had 600 backers or so. Got the first game out. Followed it all the way through, and. I just really loved it. You know, at the time, I wasn't sure if we were going to do more games or just this was going to be a do this and get it off the bucket list, learn about Kickstarter and all that. So, but man, I found out that I really love this process of making games, turning games into products. And so I started looking for other games from designers to sign. So um, since then, we've signed games from other designers and I've worked with them to develop them, uh, the mechanics, and also then to turn them into products. So artwork, uh, graphic design, all that kind of stuff, uh, hiring artists and all that, and then bringing them to market. Uh, So we've got Lanterns, the Harvest Festival is probably our most popular game, um, sold the most copies so far. Uh, We've done also World's Fair 1893. Uh, We just put out The Fox in the Forest. It's a two-player trick-taking game that just hit stores last month. Very cool. And now you guys have done a lot of Kickstarter stuff, right? Yeah, it's actually about half and half now. Um, The first three projects were Kickstarter, and then the next three we're bringing straight to retail. They're smaller smaller products. We have a Lanterns expansion, and then this two-player trick-taking, and then we've got a card game coming out this fall. Very cool. And so what I love about your perspective, you can speak on the marketability, you know, the, the, the games as products thing on both sides as far as Kickstarter and just right into retail because those are different animals and different things to think about on, on those different sides. And so let's just jump right in. Tell me just right off the bat, why is it important to think of a game as more than a game, as, as an actual product? Why is that a big deal? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's possible to just think about it as a game. And this can be your creative expression as an artist making games. You can make games for your family. You can make games for your friends. You can just make games that you want to play, make a solo game and just play it all the time. And that's perfectly fine. I'd hate to discourage anyone from doing that. But most of the people that I talk to that are designing games want to have as many people as possible playing these games. They want to make money on these games. And to do that, you really have to think about the game as a product. At the end of the day, somebody is going to buy this product, hopefully off the store shelf or a website, and bring it into their house, and you're not going to be there. You can't ship yourself in all the copies of the box, so they're going to open it. They're going to have an experience. Uh, They're either going to be happy with that experience or not, and they're going to tell their friends, and their friends are going to hopefully buy it. And in order to get the game in as many hands as possible, to make as much money as possible off of it, you got to take into effect 
into account that this is a product that people are going to buy, not just a game that they're going to play. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm thinking of, of like Vincent Van Gogh, the artist. You know, he, he was a nobody during his lifetime. Like, it wasn't until after he was dead that people were like, wow, he's one of the greatest artists of all time. And me personally, I don't want to be known as a game designer that was really great, like, 40 or 50 years from now. Like, I, would want, I want people to know that now, you know, if I'm going to be any good. And so that goes into this, is thinking about a game, not just as some game, as, you know, throwing some mechanics together that's fun, but it's something bigger than that. And now you and I, you know, talking, you, you sent me some really cool uh, notes for the show. I really appreciate it. And, and you kind of have these three points we're going to go into that are, it's marketable, profitable, and usable. And I'm excited to kind of go through that that list. So let's just talk about uh, games being marketable. So if it's going to be a product, it's got to be marketable. What does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, it has to stand out in the market. Uh, it has to be a game that someone will say, oh, that sounds cool. I want to buy it. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few different ways that games can stand out. Now, there are, there are so many games coming out right now. It's kind of insane. Um, and it's really hard for a game to stand out uh, amongst the, the huge number of games. Um, so when I'm looking at games, I'm looking to see if it has a hook. If it has... I think that's what the marketing people call it, is a hook, yeah. a thing that will really grab you and will make you stop for a moment. And, you know, as I was uh, working on lanterns, the, the quick little hook for lanterns is you tell people, you know, we've got this beautiful artwork, you place a tile, and when you do, you get a card based on which side of the tile is facing you, but so do all of your opponents. And that's the moment where people are like, ooh, tell me more, that mm. sounds interesting, you know? And it's just that in a 30-second pitch, uh, elevator pitch, you know, or a, a buzzword kind of short blurb. What is it that will make people say, "Ooh, that sounds interesting"? You know, I mean, you look at things like legacy games. Oh, the game changes over time, and you destroy components. People are like, "Whoa, that sounds interesting." Yeah. Um, you know, and for me, when I'm looking at games, I want games to sign that have the hook is in the mechanics of the game. Um, that there's some cool twist on something. Um, some interesting mechanic that leads to interesting kinds of decisions you know not just gimmicks although gimmicks would count as a hook you know if it's a lot of dexterity games kind of have this 3d uh tactile thing that almost feels like a gimmick um in some ways and you know some people say legacy is just a gimmick people who complain about having to destroy components but you know i think that the permanent decisions you make in a legacy game add to your the interestingness of your choices. You know, in Lanterns, the I place a tile and everybody gets stuff really adds a new layer. So I'm looking for a mechanical type of hook uh, for me personally. But but theme is also a really uh, powerful hook for a lot of people. Um, it'll make your project, your game, something that people want to buy. They love to be in that world or their, you know, our, our, our third game was World's Fair 1893. And we had a lot of people who, it was their first board game to back on Kickstarter because that historical theme really pulled them in. Um, you know, so all of those kinds of things, mechanics, hooks, even even components. So sometimes it's like, oh, this has a really neat component that I've never seen. You know, look, you look at like Zulkin, right? That yep. way that whole board. And it's not a gimmick because like that, the way the board spins really relates to interesting decisions about timing. And um, so it's a mechanical hook as well. But, you know, just seeing that uh, big thing on the table it has a really nice presence so you know those kinds of things are these hooks that will get someone in 30 seconds be like "Ooh, that sounds interesting tell me more yeah for sure and i think the way you put it just saying you know, it makes somebody stop 
right? Either you're telling them about it or they're walking by the game at a convention or something like that and they pause to assess, oh, what is this? And that's really what you're trying to, because like you're saying, you're trying to get that hook and just get that moment of, of uh, attention. And that's kind of the world we live in right now, whether you're talking about board games or anything else. Because we're trying to get people's attention because, I mean, our attention is so spread out now with all the different media and you got Netflix, you got all this stuff on the internet. I mean, it's just everything mm-hmm. is trying to steal our attention away. And so just anything you can do to make somebody stop. And like you said, whether it's a mechanic or a theme or even just the artwork, like when a game has just beautiful, wonderful artwork, it's all laid out on the table and somebody stops and goes, Ooh, what is this? Like that's, that's what you're looking for. And so if your game doesn't do that, it's probably going to get lost in the noise of, of everything else. And so, what are some things designers need to be really kind of thinking about in the design process that's going to make a game more mm-hmm. marketable? It's going to make people stop. Yeah, I mean, I think really focusing on what is it that sets this game apart. Now, as a designer, you shouldn't be creating artwork um, or commissioning artwork, I suppose, paying right. a lot of money for artwork. If you're going to, if your plan is to pitch to a publisher, they're typically going to want to do the artwork. Right. Um, you know, but um, you know, thinking about what is it that's going to make this game sell and you know i think a lot of designers that i know will focus on mechanical hooks like what's a new mechanic um you know i've i've heard people suggest starting with theme first and then designing mechanics or starting with you know that whole debate what i've seen especially from younger or less experienced designers is they start with a theme that is interesting and then they just put no interesting or innovative mechanics onto it Mm -hmm. so you know it's like well if you didn't really love that theme, you probably wouldn't get that game. Um, there's just nothing about the gameplay that's that stands out. Um, you know, so if, especially if you're younger uh, or a newer designer, I would say, you know, try to find what is the mechanic that interests you about this game. And, you know, I, I don't I don't recommend designing games with just mechanics for a long time because you really want for the product to work. It's got to all come together in an experience where the theme and the mechanics are informing each other. Um but if, if you're leaning towards, oh, I'd like to make a game about running a movie studio um, or I'd like to make a game about exploring a jungle or something like that, really try to find some interesting mechanics as early as you can to sort of bring that game to life. Um, don't just do very simple, basic, standard mechanics um, that aren't going to have that hook. You know, really try to find that mechanical hook early on. That would probably be my, uh, one one thing. Um and with theme, you know, theme is an interesting thing when working with the publishers. Uh, with Lanterns and World's Fair 1893, both were rethemed. So the designers submitted them to me with one theme. I loved the gameplay and signed them and then, you know, worked with the designer to come up with a new theme for both of them. You know, themes that fit the atmosphere of the game a bit better, themes that I thought might be more marketable, those kinds of things. Um so I wouldn't get too hung up on theme. If you have a theme as a designer that's inspiring you and it's really either unique or it's the kinds of things that people really want, you know, don't be afraid to run with it. You don't have to get too hung up on that. But, you know, be be sure to be willing to work with a publisher on uh, on retheming if that seems appropriate to make the game more marketable. But if you've got a marketable theme, you know, run with it, but really try to get that mechanical hook, uh, something interesting about the gameplay. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, what you said earlier about you're creating an experience. Like people want to get, you know, they want to play these games and have an experience. And if you just have a theme and the mechanics don't really make sense, then you're going to throw that off. You're not going to have that verisimilitude. You're not going to have people engrossed in that experience. They're just going to be like, oh, I thought this was going to be about 
whatever, but it doesn't feel that way. And they're not going to play it again. It's just not going to stand out. And so, yeah, I, I like what you're saying. Like, make it all kind of mesh in there together and work. And like I said, if it doesn't work, be upfront and honest about that and be okay with changing it. I feel like that's a lot of times what happens to designers. They, they get so caught up on wanting to make it work and force it to work, and it just it's not the way to go. And so let's move on to the, the kind of the next thing, that profitable. All right, so we have marketable, and now let's look at profitable. Now, obviously, this is a big deal because the company's not going to sign your game if they don't think they can make money. But let's kind of go into the more in-depth uh, things that go along yeah. with that. Yeah, the, the I think the thing that I've learned the most uh, in this process, or the thing that I guess I didn't realize that when I started, was just about understanding what the market will pay for the game based on a number of things, like what components it has, uh, how long the game plays, how deep the game is, uh, how variable the game is. Um, people will buy a $10 card game. It might not have any variability, and they can play it in 15 minutes, and they might play it three times in a night they might keep it in their bag all the time um it might not be that deep or complex but it sort of fits this market need and if you have that same game 15 minutes uh you know very simple decisions but it's got 500 meeples and 900 cards and player mats and all of this stuff like typically people aren't going to pay a hundred dollars uh, in today's market for that weight of a game for that, you know, for that, co the complexity and the depth and really trying to get those things in line. When, when people see a $35 game in the store, what is it that they're expecting from it? When they see a hundred dollar game, what are they expecting from it? Now, when you talk about games as art, you know, you want to have, you don't want to have constraints. Like I can only use 10 meeples and uh, you want to explore the gameplay. You want to develop it and design it and follow it where it goes, I think. But there's a point early on where you're saying this is fun. This is deep, but I have way too many components or, you know, this is a, I've got 18 cards, but wow, this is like a two hour in-depth strategy game. Like may maybe people won't get that if they buy 18 cards and right. just trying to get that whole experience in line to where it is the kinds of it's you know your game is like one of the games out in the market now i hesitate to say that and like stifle innovation because there are games that come out you know i think of like junk art like that's a pretty expensive game for the experience you know if you're thinking it's like a jenga experience and it's like this really high product but it, it works like so there are always going to be exceptions but you know, if you sit down to design your game and you're thinking, okay, I got a good 30 minute game. It needs a little more depth. Let me add 60 custom dice to see if I can get some more depth. That's probably the wrong approach. And so, you know, as you do this, you get more experience, but you know, just always keep in mind the number of components you have and sort of how it lines up with other games that are like it. Once you start looking really closely, you'll see there's more variance in the market than you would think around price and components. But, um, you know, and I'm, a huge proponent that games are more than just the components for sure. But you know, when someone picks up a box and it's like really light and it's got an $80 price tag, right. it may cause them to just stop. So as you're designing your game, you know, keep all those things in mind, kind of know what the market is expecting, know the kinds of things they're looking for. And yeah, sometimes an innovative product can break out of that. But you know, if you're going to do that, you should probably have a good reason to believe that your game will be one of the exceptions. It probably won't. That's just the nature of exceptions. But just kind of understand that as you're designing, you know, just don't add too many components. Yeah, and I think you make a good point is just look at other games and kind of see 
what's in them, the weight, the complexity of those games, and then how much it costs, and then what they kind of had to do uh, component-wise to get it under a certain price point. Because people, they know what they're doing generally, like especially the big companies, Asmodee and those guys, they, they know how to price stuff. And, and you're dealing with perception. Like you said, when, when somebody picks up uh, a really heavy game and it only costs 40 bucks, you're like, wait, what? what, what? Like, am I getting a really good deal? Or is yeah. this game not any good? Like, you start playing the, the kind of games in your mind, or if you pick up a game that's $90 and it, it weighs a pound, you're like, hmm, is there, more, is there money in the game? Like, am I going to make money? You know, like, <laughs> and so yeah, you're dealing I mean, with perception. Yeah, and I get some submissions for games, um, and sometimes the designers say, like, these are the components. It's about, like, what Catan has. And then I go look, and it's like, well, no, no, Catan doesn't have that and that, and the extra 500 cards that you have sort of, does push it to another price point. You know, and the other thing with production costs and components is that the more of them, the more of the games you make, the cheaper the cost is. So if you're if you're running a Kickstarter and it's your first Kickstarter, like mine, we had 600 backers, we printed 1,500 copies of the game, I didn't get the same price breaks that I would have got if I had printed 10,000. So, you know, you, you got to be careful with that too. So I wouldn't go necessarily go look at Catan and Ticket to Ride but but look right. at some of the games from middleweight publishers you know medium-sized publishers that came out just like last year you know that's sort of a, a more I guess accurate you know if the kind of game you're going to sign with a publisher like that look at the other games they make and kind of what their price is and sort of just get a feel for what the market rate for a game uh, is and what kinds of components it has it will surprise you how little components some of these great games have you know when you're designing and you got your you know all your bits and bobs that you've been collecting it's really easy to just throw in more stuff um you know when we're working on a game we're we're always thinking well that's that's 12 more cents if we add that you know um we're getting we're getting better at that as (laughs) as we go um because we just know if, if we add that token we need a punch board and at the numbers we run that'll be 12 cents and that'll do this to the msrp and it's like is that is that worth it? You know, and a lot of that stuff we're doing in development, um, product development on our side. So it's not even, it's just not, the designer doesn't have to make all of those decisions, but if you keep that in mind, when a publisher sees your component list, they may just say, I, you, you clearly haven't thought this through. Right. I just can't even take a look at this game because so many components. Um, you know, and the other, the other interesting thing with costs is the artwork costs uh, because those are fixed costs. You pay those once, um, as a small publisher, that was definitely been my strategy is, you know, Lanterns and World's Fair and even Fox in the Forest don't have a lot of innovative components. It's mostly punch board and cards and some wood tokens. Uh, we did have a stretch goal in Lanterns where we added some silk screen printed, uh, or screen printed, uh, tokens, which turned out really nice, but they were sort of a step up because of the stretch goals. Um, so we've really focused on artwork because we can, it's not going to affect the cost of a small print run. The artwork's going to be the same if we do 1,500 or 10,000 units, you know. So uh, especially when I was getting going, that was where I put a lot of my emphasis on on making the games look good was on the artwork. You know, we've had some opportunities to do more component, more interesting components as we've gotten more experience. But, the you know, that's been, the artwork's been a really key driver for us in keeping our production costs low uh, is just having great art which does make the game cost more up front um but with kickstarter we get 
you know, good margins on our sales, which we can recoup a lot of those artwork costs uh, up front. Yeah. And I think, like you said just a moment ago, it's not necessarily the designer's job to worry about this stuff. Like, don't let it mess up your design process, but at least be aware. You know, and if your game, like I've got a game I'm working on, it's got a ton of custom dice. And so going into when I was pitching it to a publisher, I told him, I said, hey, here's the game as it is. But I've also been working on this other kind of pared down version that's not quite what I'm going for, but it would be cheaper to produce. And so if you want to talk about that, we can't just to kind of let the publisher know, hey, I've already been thinking about, yeah, I realize that this would cost extra to have this extra stuff in there. And but just just be aware of it because the publisher is going to be very aware of it. Like they're, they're going to be right yeah. on top of it. Uh, and any, yeah, I mean, anything else along those lines? I would just say, yeah, when you're when you're designing and you're about to make a decision and it's like, well, what should we try first? Uh, it's the same cost to you if you're going to sticker uh, six dice that are the same mold or if they're different because you're going to have to print out the stickers and stick them all on the dice. But from a publishing perspective, that's way different if it's one mold versus six. And so, you know, just try them all with the same mold first. You know, I mean, I think that's sort of the the way I would say to think about these things is if you're thinking we need a deck of maybe 10, maybe 100 cards, try it with 10 first and see if that's fun before you just jump in and try it with 100 cards. Because by then you may be like, well, I can't lose these 100 cards. This is so fun. And it may be. And it may be a little more fun with 100 cards than with 10, but it may make it a better product if you can get you know, 95% of the fun out of those 10 cards and be able to hit a lower price point. Yeah, and I think this is actually where playtesting and profitability kind of Go, go hand in hand because one thing I've learned through playtesting is is find that fun like what are what are playtesters really really enjoying and then cut out the rest because that's yeah. one that's going to make your game better but two is going to make it cheaper to produce if you can cut out 50 mm-hmm. cards if you can cut out these extra dice or these extra tokens you know if listen to your playtesters because they might be making your game cheaper not just more fun <laughs> yeah. but also cheaper and so uh, what have what have you found in in your process especially on the publishing side that playtesting has kind of helped with the profitability Oh, that's an interesting angle. Um, you know, usually by the time we've signed a game, we've got the component list down to, you know, it's going to be two or three punch boards. It's going to be 50 or maybe 80 cards. You know, it's we're definitely in a much narrower band and we're usually okay with the higher band, I suppose. Um, we, we had... Uh, the the game that we just sent to the printer, uh, it's a small card game. It's uh, called Sunday Split. It's an ice cream themed I split you choose yeah. uh, game. And the scoring, you know, we were trying to figure out, can we can we just have people count their scores? Can we recommend they use paper and pencil? Can we provide tokens or a score pad? You know, and we had all of those different things costed out. Obviously, the no scoring mechanism is cheaper, but we had the other things costed out and we were trying you know, different, we would test it with different uh, versions of the scoring system to try to figure out which would be the most usable. We sort of narrowed down that these are all within our acceptable price point um, by that point. But, you know, just trying to test the real components. Like, if we use tokens for this, can can players do what they need to do? Can they still get that fun? Is this going to slow it down? You know, and this might be transitioning into usable, but we had, uh, with World's Fair, we had some scoring um each region there's five regions in each region you get points for having a majority and every region had a different number of points that you got and when it was pitched it had a lot of scoring tokens uh like you know one threes and fives just so you could take victory points kind of like smash up or something and 
you know, counting out and making change, it was a lot of work. So we looked at, could we add a score track instead? And how will that improve the usability? And it did pretty well, but it was still, you know, a lot of counting out. And so we we're like, well, okay, so we could add a score track and tokens, but that's actually not helping the usability enough. And so we looked at, well, what if we made all the regions the same point wise? And then we had scoring tokens like first and second place medals. So they had the points on them. They were four and two is what they ended up being. But Instead of having like just all these generic tokens you're counting out, how would it go if every time you won a region, you just took the I won this region token, you know? And so in a way, it made it more profitable because we didn't need the score track. Um, our emphasis there was on usability, like how quickly can people get through the scoring phase? And, you know, your decisions might be a tiny bit more interesting if all of the regions are different. Uh, points it's definitely more complex so it takes you a little longer to process what your best move is and so we tested them with them the same and people were it's actually easier to process what their options were and they actually ended up having more fun so we were just trying to kind of look at cost and usability we ended up letting people focus more on what was fun you know and people who like more complicated games you know i've had some playtesters that they liked it a little better before and you know it's like well overall we're getting more people into the fun part of the game uh, doing this. And they're, they're all the, the, all these things are all related, you know, because now we need different components, so it affects the profit margin, but it's easier to use and may have a positive or negative impact on the fun. Yeah, for sure. Now, anything else that, that a designer needs to be aware of when thinking about the profitability of a game? Because, again, that can be something that can get you really bogged down if you let it, and you can really be worried too much, and that's really the publishing side. But anything that, like, that you would tell me to think about as I'm designing a game just to make it more profitable, make it make the margins better. Yeah, I mean, we talked about picking a game comparing to other games. I think designing with a publisher in mind is a really good thing too, so that it's like this is the same weight as as these games, and just really, really look at those components. Try to keep them as few as possible. Don't don't let the game be unfun. You know, don't 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 give yourself a hard restriction. Like I can't have more than this um, because a publisher will often be like, oh. We could lose those two punch boards and just give every player a card. And you'd be like, I would have never thought of that. And it's way more fun with those extra components. You know, so do let the publisher, uh, you know, handle that. Be willing to work with them on that. But really, I think the most important thing as a designer is when you're making choices that have different profitability uh, implications, pick the cheaper one first and see if it's fun. Yeah. And then really, really watch that depth. So, you know, I mean, I... I keep talking about some of the pitches I get. People say, you know, I'm making a game and it's like Lords of Waterdeep and then it has all the components of Lords of Waterdeep. So I'm like, cool. And we sit down and it's nowhere near as deep as right. Lords of Waterdeep. And so it's not just the components. It is that gameplay. So make sure when you're comparing your game with other games for components that you're also looking at how deep is this? Like how how much is involved in making my decisions? How long term are my decisions Um is this a fast, quick game where I'm doing things quickly? Well, then don't compare it to Terra Mystica and don't say, yeah, I got all the same components as Terra Mystica. You know, really compare those games on the components, the depth, the playtime, all of those factors. And, and that'll really help you as you're just, again, just when you're making decisions, it's like, well, let's try it the simpler way first. Let's try it the cheaper way first. Um, don't get too hung up on it, but do really try to tailor your designs in a particular kind of cost bracket. Yeah, I think it's also smart to just be aware of who you are as a designer and, like, your reputation right now as a designer. Like, Eric Lang, if he goes to anybody and says, hey, I've got this game, it's got a thousand minis in it. 
that company's probably mm-hmm. going to go, cool, we're going to make a million dollars. Because they know him. They know what he's done. He's got that reputation. If I go to somebody and I'm like, hey, my game's got eight miniatures. They're like, yeah, we're not making your game. You know, like, just be aware of your reputation because it, you're going to be fighting that battle component-wise. If you have all these custom components and you're, you've never really done anything, you know, the publisher's taking a risk to, to put your yeah. game out there. And, you know, so just be aware of that as well. Yeah, I mean, and just as an extra credit assignment, you know, look at another form of entertainment products that you like, whether it's comics or movies or TV shows or books, and just try to think about those as products and maybe even try to get some information about how those things, how, you know, how funding works in those fields. I just watched a little 10 minute documentary on a scene in Inception, how they did the hotel uh, lobby fight scene where the gravity's changing. And they talked about, you know, Christopher Nolan and sort of his his history of making game uh, making movies and they they talked about you know he asked for 160 million to make inception and they said that's almost unheard of in the film industry for a movie that doesn't have either an ip or uh, a movie that's not a sequel and you know on on my side as a consumer like inception of course was great christopher nolan's got a great track record but i i hadn't really thought about that movie as a product i mean i think movies are art as well and but they're also products and how those products get made you know christopher nolan had been working on the script for inception for many years but he got his reputation up first he found a studio that was interested in it years earlier and he kept writing that script and after doing the batman movies and having the success that he had he was finally able to go say hey i got this crazy sci-fi movie with no established audience can i have 160 million dollars and they said sure Yep. That sounds great. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have done that 15 years earlier. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing for designers to realize as well. And so if you're working on a few different games and one of them is super component heavy and there's a ton of custom stuff in there, maybe don't try to make that the first one you get published. Like Maybe yeah. put that on the back burner and make those other ones first just to get your name out there. Yeah. Now, moving on into the kind of usability of things. This is something that a lot of people don't think about, like games as usable thing, as a usable product. Tell me about yeah. that. What does that mean? Yeah, so my background is uh, my day job. I'm a software developer. Um, I work with a lot of UX uh, user experience designers, user interface designers, so thinking a lot about human-computer interaction in my day job. Um, so I really approach games as it's an interface. So somebody said that, Board games are basically software that runs on humans yeah. because humans are enforcing the rules. When you when you play a video game, it sort of enforces the rules for you. But here, humans have to enforce the rules. And so there's a lot of interacting with the cards. There's a lot of interface design, I think, that goes into that. And people often you know talk about that as graphic design. But I mentioned earlier, like for scoring, do we use uh, you know, just generically denominated tokens? Do we use a score track? And with World's Fair, we had found that when we were testing the game, we were getting consistently 45, 60 minute play times because the scoring phase was just taking too long because, you know, it's like, okay, blue gets five points for this. Okay, somebody count off five on the score track. Uh, red gets three, somebody count off three. And when we could just hand you a, you got first place, you got second place, tokens it actually sped up the playtime it got the game down to about 30 to in the 30 to 45 minute range which is more what the depth of the decisions want you know and so we've gotten great reviews it's like man this game packs a lot into a short playtime and when it was 60 minutes it was like that's a pretty good game and you know just really improving the usability of the game helped a lot there 
that game also has another interesting thing. It was pitched to me with tokens instead of cards, and you draw the tokens out of the bag to place them down on the on the regions. And we looked at what would it take to move them to cards. You know, what would change? So the board got smaller because well, the board would have had to get bigger to hold the cards. We couldn't do that, so we made the board smaller, and you put the cards along the edge. And I mean, a few interesting things happen there. When you've got tokens in a bag, it's harder to see if the deck's running out or not. Whereas when you have a deck of cards, that's much easier. Um, just different things like that that really play into how gamers are understanding the the situation on the board. So, you know, tokens versus cards, uh, the score track or the score pad even. So for the ice cream game, we decided to go with a score pad at the end because it just it just fit with the gameplay more. It actually made the scoring go a little faster. You didn't need everybody doing as much mental calculation. So, you know, the score... The scorekeeper would just say, how many points did you get for your ice cream flavors? And you could quickly just count those and then they'd have to add them up. But it was working better than a score track or even individual score tracks. And we tried a bunch of different things um, along those lines. You know, where the text goes on your card is is a big deal. How small the font has to be to hold the cards, you know. So, I mean, that's, again, the, the publisher is going to handle a lot of this. But when you're designing your games, you should have a good idea of like how much text can I generally fit on a card before it gets too crazy, you know, and playtesting icons, you know, we, we do a lot of that, but I, I think designers should be aware that if you have a clean graphic design, people may be understanding what's going on in your game better and you may be more fun. Sometimes games seem too hard or too frustrating for players and it's just a graphic design issue. If the cards were cleaner they would understand what they're doing better and they would be focusing on the decisions in the game and not deciphering these icons. So there's some of that, you know, all of that sort of plays into it. And, you know, if you've got a really clean layout for your card and you've basically figured out this is where the text goes, if you have an idea for a card that's three paragraphs of text for the rules, like, just don't don't even try that, right. you know? <laughs> don't even play that because... At the end of the day, it's not going to work like that. I mean, you know, you can play and see if it's fun and see if you can streamline those rules or, you know, maybe you're going to end up with gigantic size cards because of that. But as you sort of get a design in a good shape and it's like, yeah, poker size cards with this much room for text and icons here, players are understanding what they're doing. You know, all that's, I think, important to do even in the design stage. It's hard to tell if a game is fun if players can't even understand what their options are. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a lot to unpack with this because actually this goes back into the profitability. Like if you've got these giant oversized cards, well, those are more expensive to produce than, you know, general poker sized cards and just be aware of that Yeah. as well. And I think it really, it gets, it boils down to just being aware, always being aware that your game is going to be played by people. Mm-hmm. And people that don't know your game, and so just like mm-hmm. thinking through that, like I've, I've played games. This is more from the publishing side, but I've played games where the tokens were insanely hard to pick up. Like they yeah. were just so thin, like you just had almost had to rake them into your lap to pick it up off the table. Yeah. And if you're only doing that once, not a big deal. But if you're doing that yeah. constantly, like every turn, like using that to pay for things or whatever, it's super frustrating, and it makes you not want to play that game anymore. Well, that's a usability problem. Like the game is just yeah. not as usable. And like you said, the icons. Uh, I can't remember. There's a certain like scientific word for it, but there's a certain number 
that the human brain can look at a number of things and know exactly how many there are mm-hmm. without having to count them. And it's like five yeah. or six, like the, the, you know, different people yeah. have different numbers, but you can look at it and go, oh, that's yeah. five without having to go one, two, three, four, five. But just being aware of that, because how much mm-hmm. of the game do you want to get bogged down by people having to count as opposed to, you know, and just making it more usable yep. along those lines? Yeah, we played a game recently. It's a game we love, uh, but it has, you have a hand limit of eight, and that can go up over the game as you buy bigger things. But when you get to your hand limit, you're restricted on what you can do. And we are all the time in that game. It's one. I mean, my wife loves it. I, I really enjoy it. But you're counting. Do I have 16 cards or 15 or 17? If I take that, will that push me over the limit? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just a lot of that counting. You know, you'll hear reviewers use the word fiddly when yeah. you're when you're looking at a game that's not uh, in this category, you know, it's not efficient or it's not usable is that, you know, you're, you're all the time having to move stuff around and it's really hard to pick them up or move them. You know, uh, when I was doing, you know, as I do with computer work, uh, one of the guys who was really big on usability a few years ago, his name's Jacob Nielsen. And, uh, he wrote an article that has really stuck with me. He identified five qualities that fit under usable and on web stuff. We're actually talking a lot about learnability. How easy is it for somebody who doesn't who hasn't used your website or used your application to figure out what they need to do for the first time. And, you know, when you look at board games, that's a lot of rule book stuff, but also all that graphic design, you know, how easy is it to pick up? Do you have rules that aren't intuitive? Are you using cards in a new way? And sometimes it's cool to do something innovative, you know, with the game we're working on right now to put on Kickstarter this fall is called spy club and it has cards that are double-sided. They have faces on both sides, and whichever side is up is what matters. It's, it's a little unusual. It's a little unique. There are times you can get away with that, and there are times that your whole game can't be too innovative, or people won't. They'll do the wrong things. Right. You know, with lanterns, we had resources. Your your car, your uh, lanterns are cards, and during playtesting, we had a lot of people say, "Do I hold these in my hand? Are they private information, or do I put them?" on the table that came up a lot because normally in a game when you get a card you pick it up and hold it in your hand um when we were playtesting that we printed the cards just on one side because it was cheaper to print them on one side well the realization we had really late in the process is that if we printed them on double on both sides if both sides had the picture of the lantern that people wouldn't think that they wouldn't think they could pick it up and hold it in their hand because obviously it would show you what's on the back right and so when after we published that game that is question has never come up it's never come up about do I pick these up and hold them in my hand or not because just from the simple graphic design choice of putting that on the back. Uh, we talked about efficiency. That's another one of uh, the usability things. And then these these I really think are important. There's memorability and can they use your interface without making errors. You know, a lot of games today, the real focus is on how easy is it to learn, which I think is very important. You know, we got people making great videos and stuff. But another thing to remember is once somebody's learned it, how easy is it to remember what they do? And so some of the icon stuff that we work on, you know, it's like you you want to make it really detailed so that somebody who's never played your game before can look at the icon and figure it out sometimes. But that makes them way more intricate. And so with World's Fair, the the action cards that you play the icons won't, they don't tell you all the scenarios. You might not be able to figure out what the icon does by looking at it the first time. But once you've learned it, they're pretty obvious what they do. And so we found, we did test that after we had designed the icons. Is like, how easy is it for people to remember on subsequent plays? 
some of the things with memorability, uh, we have set up in Lanterns, you remove a certain number of tiles based on the players. And that's one thing that people who've played before won't remember. You might not, you, you remember when I place a tile, we get cards, you remember how the game plays. But setup is one of those tricky areas where if you do anything complicated with setup, people might not remember it. And so, you know, if I, one of the things I like to do in Lanterns is put those numbers on a reference card. So you're not actually having to dig out the rule book again, but as you're sorting the cards, it's like, oh yeah, here's the setup card. You know, one of my favorite games, Bruges does that. It has, has a really nice setup card that sits with the other reference cards and it walks you through these are the five things you do and it's really clear and straightforward yeah and along those lines i'm thinking about you know the other day i was helping a friend he's working on a game and he had a rule in there that you only had to roll a certain die at certain times you know when it's going to if this then that kind of moments and so he was talking about in playtesting people would constantly forget because it wasn't every turn it wasn't every round and so when those scenarios came up they would forget to roll that extra die and it was kind of messing up the gameplay and so we were just kind of chatting, talking about, and I asked him, I said, well, what if you just change the odds on the die and then roll it every single time? And so, you know, and, and he did that and it ended up the ratio, like the number of times that the, this thing worked out, it was about the same just by changing the ratio on the die. But now it's rememberable, you know, you can remember it because it's every mm -hmm. single turn you do that. And so I think, yeah. you know, realizing that people are going to forget. And so if you have a lot of bookkeeping, if you have a lot of steps in a process, maybe pare that down as much as you can. And if you have these rules that are only in there every now and then, can you get rid of them? Because like you said, people are going to, they're going to forget these things. And it's going to make your game less usable. Yeah. And you know, there are things you can do with reference cards. There are things you can do printing icons on the, on the board where these things go. I mean, one of the great games with this is Terra Mystica. If you had to, a table that said if you've got this many of the settlements or whatever they're called built, you get this much energy and all that. It'd be crazy. You'd forget. But the way they did the graphic design on the board is that, you know, the the building covers its benefit after you've built it. So when you build it, you put it out there, now that spot's exposed. And so now it's way easier. You just look at your board and see what you get. Way easier than any kind of algorithm or reference card or table in the rule book would have been which you know might have been i mean who knows that may have been that what they tried at first and like that's not working we have to find a way to make this more memorable so sometimes you've got to change your rules to make it easier to remember sometimes graphic design alone can help sometimes some thematic integration will help if you you call the action something and it really oh yeah if if it started raining we would of course lose one action or one step or something you know if a lot of times that can help. The theme really can help with some of that. But just watch your players. Watch what they forget to do. Watch what you have to remind them of and figure out, you know, do they need to do this? Would the game break if they forgot to do this? Would they have a terrible experience at home if they forgot to do this one thing? And maybe see if you can cut it out. You know, I mean, a lot of designs will have weird rules. I played a game last night uh, with some guys and they had a rule, you can't build two cards with the same name you know seven wonders has that um because it can lead to some degenerate strategies but that's a rule that people are going to forget and you just got to like sometimes you just have to decide like if people are playing this in a tournament they're going to remember and maybe it's important to have it in and if people are playing at home and they forget and they're not playing it too seriously it won't matter and so maybe it's okay you know but there, there's a lot of trade-offs in this i'm surprised as i get into all the nitty-gritty details how many trade-offs you have i play tested a game with my game with some folks last night too and they said well why don't you just do this and i'm like well it it leads to this path oh yeah and what about why don't you just do this it's like well yeah but 
if we do that, you know, here's the thing. If you actually are counting the cards, then now all of a sudden the whole thing breaks down. And so it's like, we've got this the way it is. Is it usable enough? Because I know I need it this way for gameplay-wise, for mechanics-wise. The game doesn't fall over at any point. Um, so, yeah, I was doing some usability testing on a, a new set of cards last night. And it, it worked great. And like I said, they suggest some other things. I'm like, well, we've already been down that path. We know those lead to degenerate uh, gameplay situations. So we can't do that. Um, you know, so it, there's just so many trade-offs you're making all the time. It's crazy. Yeah, now let's talk about usability in the form of like color blindness and just being aware of, of you know, your games played by people. And so what, what should a designer be thinking about along those lines? Yeah, so World's Fair is a good example of that because it has four player colors and then each, there's five regions which each have a color as well. And so we spent a bit more time than I was expecting to worried about the colors and how the cubes look on top of the area. So if I've got red cubes and they're on top of the red area... Um, you know, do they show up or not? And some of that's really hard to test until you have the final art, until you know the direction. And But just to be aware that, you know, they say I think it's 5 or 10% of men are colorblind. Um, and even not just colorblindness, but, you know, if you're testing your game at home under this bright light, it's very different than people playing in a convention hall or playing in a pub, you know. I mean, play your game with... My first game, we have color matters on some of the tokens. And so we played it in our dining room with the lights off, with the light from the living room on to see, like, can we tell? Like, can we even tell uh, what it's going to be? You know, uh, the game I mentioned we're working on now, Spy Club, the cards are a specific color. And it's really easy in the prototype. They're just solid blue with an icon. Um, But when we got to production, we had a lot of... You know, we wanted art on the card, and we had to make the art feel green, so that looking across the table, you're like, "That's a blue card. That's a green card." And, you know, it was a lot of effort. Whereas the prototype is really simple. Um, but if you, when you're when you're playtesting a prototype, you might not have as many colorblind people that you know, and or you might always be testing in key good lighting situations. So some of that, if you're aware of it, and you from the beginning, you try to add a texture or you try to add an icon to help with that um it can help a lot as you get things that have a lot more colors like with world's fair you know we my favorite color to play is red i always play red but late in the process i just realized the red cubes were not going to work when they were placed on the fine arts board and so we changed that i took my favorite color out of the game (laughs) (laughs) because the fine arts looked really good as red and all the artwork had been done assuming that those would be red and so we had to change the the colors and it, it is a tricky balance sometimes to get colors that look really good, colors that fit your theme, colors that make sense on what they're supposed to be representing and still are colorblind friendly or low lighting friendly. I mean, all of these situations, we, we play games in low lighting. We we got a new game table for our entryway. Our, we have an open living room area, but we don't have an overhead light or fan in there. So we are playing in there very low light situations even you know, and my my wife and I, when we game right now, we have a really bad lighting situation. <laughs> um, so you know that happens all the time. So you just got to keep all that in mind. And I, I don't think that it's a huge deal as the designer pitching your game to a publisher. Um, but if you if you've got resources that represent things in the real world and you want to use cubes for those or cards for those, like just keep in mind that at some point someone's going to do artwork for these and that artwork might not be as easy to understand as your solid color cards. Just about every project I have 
this moment where we merge some graphic design with some artwork that we finally got in and we have this panic like oh no that's not as usable as the prototype we've been playtesting this prototype we know that cards this size will work but now that we've got artwork everything is different Mm -hmm. uh with world's fair late in the process we increased the cards from mini size to i guess like a tan resource size because of that they we couldn't get the text and the icons and the artwork as clear as we wanted. So, you know, we increased the size of the card. We had to increase the size of the board. And there were some things we had to do sort of last minute, not last minute, but before the Kickstarter campaign to make that, you know, we did play testing. We, we made cards in all three sizes. We did bridge cards, the Euro size and these mini size. And we play tested those a lot after we got the artwork. So it does happen. And I don't know that there's any way around it. You make a really clean, usable prototype you try to merge in some art, you may have this panicked moment. Um, it just it seems like it's a natural part of the process if you're not doing all the artwork up front. So yeah. again, just just know that's going to happen. Know that your prototype's going to be clean and usable. Keep some of these things in mind. You know, if tokens are going to be easier to use than cards for a certain thing, if you're going to put them on a board, that's one thing. The board would have to be a lot bigger to hold cards um, than if it's not. So. Again, you don't have to design perfectly colorblind, friendly solutions. Uh, sometimes it's easy. Just put a texture and an icon. And sometimes it's harder and it's going to need custom wood shapes. You know, if you can make your player pieces different so that they're not all cubes, that kind of stuff can go a long way uh, to make it easier. You know, we did have one colorblind complaint on World's Fair that our blue, our really light blue and our really dark purple, they could not, one, one user, could, one player could not tell them apart. And it's just because of the blue and the purple. Um, so they had to substitute them out with black cubes um, to be able to play the game. And, you know, it's just it's really hard if you don't know people who uh, it's just about like, people game in so many different situations. Right. And you're going to do yourself a big service if you can play test in those real world uh, situations. So we've got the game we're working on now is a campaign element where people are unlocking new cards and getting new rules. And we are asking players to play testers to videotape themselves. And so we're watching them play in their real homes and their real situations, you know, and sometimes a kid will get up and leave and go get a snack and come back. And like, you really just need to see people play these games in their real environments uh, to get a good feel on some of these issues. Yeah, for sure. And, and like we said earlier, just being aware that these are issues and, and trying to do the best you can to make it accessible for everybody. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, Jacob Nielsen's like big five qualities for usable stuff, and you mentioned learnability, efficiency, memorability, but what are the next two? What's number four and five? Uh, uh, number four was error-free. Can people use the interface without making errors? And you know, we talked a little bit about that. If people are going, you know, which errors can you get rid of? Which errors is it okay if people make, you know? Um, I think Seven Wonders is a good example of that. If if people forget that they can't build a card with the same name and they're playing casually, it probably won't be a big deal. Or someone might be able to catch it because they'll, a couple turns later, someone will be like, hey, how'd you get two of those? Uh, but if you've got a game that you're playing behind a screen and people are doing like crazy complicated moves and there's all kinds of rules about legal placement and at the end is when you reveal and it's like, hey, you can't do that. You know, you know, where where are errors happening? When can they be caught? Games with a lot of private information, it's really hard because you don't know what other people have and there's no way to catch that you've made a mistake until maybe later. Um, but just understand what will happen um, if people make errors. And 
coming back to rule books, I think a, a key thing I'd want to point out here is that people use rule books for two ways as a tutorial to learn the game and then as a reference for when they're in the middle of a game and they have a question. And the rule book is probably not the best you it's not the format of a rule book is not really the best way to answer both of these. You know, a lot of people like video tutorials and FAQs for rule books as references, but you know, I've had some fun experiences. Somebody will do a live stream of one of our games and they'll go look in the rule book when they have a question. And it's just so fascinating to watch that. And that's why we're trying to do some video play testing earlier um, with these things, because we had this one, this guy was live streaming the game. He went and he looked up a question. He said, he put the rule book down and said, the rule book doesn't answer this, but I think it's this because some word is in italics. And I was like, wow, the answer was one paragraph above. It was like in a different section. The rule book clearly answered it. But, you know, we, I really was focusing, especially at the beginning of all this, writing rule books as tutorials and not thinking about where are people going to go if they have this question, if this question comes up, where are they going to go in the rule book and making sure it's there? So there's some things in the rule book with World's Fair that we have in duplicate sections because everything's so interconnected in that game that someone might have a question about this one thing that the rules when you teach it would be in a different section. It's not where they would look. And so we're trying to get better about play testing the rule books and watching the questions that people have and then trying to make sure the answers to those questions are where they would look for them. Um, which leads to some duplication. My rulebook editor, uh, Dustin Schwartz, he doesn't like when you put the same piece of information twice. He tries to get rid of all the repetition. But there are times where we've had to say, like, if people are going to ask this question, they're going to some will look here and some will look there. And right. it needs to at least be in both places so that we can capture that. Uh, and then the last one uh, that Jacob Nielsen talks about is satisfaction. And he's talking about user interfaces for computers. So you're usually using a computer to achieve some goal. And he's like, are you, is, is it enjoyable to use? Um, are, are you satisfied? And with games, you know, the, the goal of games is to be fun and engaging. So there's, I think that one's really a, a, a huge part of games. And is it usable? Is it fun? You know, was it a joy to interact with your product is kind of the way to think about it. And the way games spread is through word of mouth. I mean, that's a huge part of how games get big in this industry is, you know, a lot of us follow all the conventions and the BGG releases, but uh, it's such a small group of people compared to who buys games. And if your game is fun, if your game delivers on the experience that it promises, people will tell their friends about it. And so, again, it comes all the way back around is was it a joy for me to use it? Uh, did it make me want to tell my friends about it? Am I going to make money as a publisher on every copy that I sell? Then I can just kind of get this positive feedback loop going. And you look at games that have been hits like Catan and Ticket to Ride. You know, they came out to the hobby market. And they just snowballed into now. They just keep selling and keep selling because every person that buys a new one plays it and tells their friend about it. And it just has this, you know, big positive uh, feedback cycle. Now, not every game is going to be an evergreen. That's not, it's something to aspire to, but it's not something that most games are going to be able to hit. But the more you focus on all of these things, the the bigger your chance is that people will tell their friends and the game will just keep growing and keep growing and keep selling and keep selling. Yeah, absolutely. And wow, I mean, Randy, this has been incredible. What, what any kind of like last advice you would give somebody as they're designing a game to think about it as a product? 
yeah, again, it's going to be on a shelf someday. If that's your goal, it doesn't have to be your goal. Your goal can be to paint a painting and hang it on your wall and enjoy it for yourself. That is a perfectly acceptable thing. And it's not a condescending thing to say, do that or to say, you don't have to worry about selling your games. Just, you know, if that's fine for you, that's perfectly reasonable. But if your goal is to sell a lot of copies, to get a lot of people to play it and even make some money, you really got to think about all of these things. Think about it as a product um, and think about it as an entertainment product. I think that's something we often forget is that when people um, are making decisions about what they want to buy, it's not just what games am I going to buy. There's a bigger world out there where their money has to go to a new technology gadget, trip to the movies, and a game. And what is it that can make your game be more fun than watching a movie or more fun than a video game or more fun than um, you know a trip to play mini golf or whatever it is that people do to entertain themselves. What is it about your game that's going to set it apart? Um, it's going to make it stand out above all of the things that people might do, not just games, but all of the things that they might do. You know, What are the ways that you can make this a, a good rock solid product that people are going to want to buy? Just yeah. keep all that in mind. Keep all these things in mind as you design. You know, as as designers, usually you're trying to make a game that's fun, and that is a huge part of a game that sells for sure. But there are plenty of fun games that that's their best feature, and they don't have a lot of these other things. There are too many components, or they're too fiddly to use, or it's too hard to learn or remember how to play, or it's a theme that nobody wants to buy. And if you want to sell games, then you got to focus on a lot of these things. Again. Working with a publisher is great. If you're going to kickstart a game, it's something I'd say, you know, really keep in mind. Can you really do all this product design? Can you really make your fun game into a profitable, marketable, and usable product? Partnering with a publisher will help. It, it might make some of your creative vision have to change, and that's if that's okay with you. Um, if you're going to sell a hundred thousand copies of a game, like that might some of that might have to change. If you want to make niche products and you want to put them on Kickstarter and you're fine selling fewer copies or you're hoping to get it big and sell a lot of copies yourself. It's a lot of work to do all of this product design, um, but you can do it. There are definitely plenty of examples of designers who have self-published their games and they've taken the care and the time to do all of this. But you're going, making a game is one thing and making a product that's another. And to make a game that is fun and viable in this market, it takes a lot of skills and a lot of time to make all this stuff work. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and kind of like going along with what you're saying, you're not necessarily creating a game, you're creating a fun engine and that people put time in and they get fun <laughs> out. You know, that, that yeah. this, Whether it's a movie or a book or whatever, as a creative person, you're creating an engine. And, and so create a really good engine that people don't say. Like I have a friend who just got back from the movies yesterday, and he said, yeah, I'll never get those two hours of my life back. You yeah. Know, that was an awful movie. And that's not what you want. You want people to say, well, yeah. I put an hour in, and I got way more than an hour's worth of fun out of it. And so just be aware of all these things as you as you make that game and as you make a product. Well, Randy, man, really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for being part of the BGDO community, man. It's great to have a, a guy that's listening to the show that also comes on the show. And yeah, you know, I love I love what you're doing. You're getting some great guests and uh, covering some great topics. I, I really like the show. I appreciate it. Man. I'm having a ton of fun and I'm learning so much in, in the process. And I hope everybody else is as well. We're about to head over to the bonus round. We're going to talk to Randy about what to expect when working with a publisher. So Randy, he's been in the publishing business for a while. He's you know been signing designers and signing games. And so he's got some pretty good insight on, on what to expect if you get your game signed and on what the publisher relationship is going to be like. And so I'm excited to hear about that over in the bonus round. But Randy, thanks again for coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on. All right. Thanks a lot.
Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?